In the days when the judges led Israel, there was a famine in the land. Man from Bethlehem and Judah left home to live in the country of Moab, he with his wife and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. His sons were named Malon and Kilion, Bethlehem and Judah. They all went to the country of Moab and settled there. Elimelech died and Naomi was left with her two sons. The sons took Moabite wives. The name of the first was Orpah, the second Ruth. They lived there in Moab for the next 10 years. But then the two brothers, Melon and Kilion, died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. One day she got herself together and her two daughters-in-law to leave the country of Moab and set out for home. She had heard that God had been pleased to visit his people and give them food. And so she started out from the place she had been living with her two daughters-in-law on the road back to the land of Judah. After a short while on the road, Naomi told her two daughters-in-law, go back, go home and live with your mothers. And may God treat you as graciously as you treated your deceased husbands and me. May God give each of you a new home and a new husband. She kissed them and they cried aloud. They said, no, we're going with you to your people. But Naomi was firm. Go back, my dear daughters. Why would you come with me? Do you suppose I still have sons in my womb who can become your future husbands? Go back, dear daughters, on your way, please. I'm too old to get a husband. Why, even if I said, there's still hope. In this very night, got a man and had sons. Can you imagine being satisfied to wait until they were grown? Would you wait that long to get married again? No, dear daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they cried aloud. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth embraced her and held on. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is going back home to live with her own people and gods. Go with her. But Ruth said, don't force me to leave you. Don't make me go home where you go, I go, and where you live, I'll live. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. And where you die, I'll die. And that's where I'll be buried. So help me, God. Not even death itself is going to come between us. When Naomi saw that Ruth had her heart set in going with her, she said no more. And so the two of them traveled on together to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was soon buzzing. Is this really our Naomi? And after all this time? But she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. The strong one has dealt me a bitter blow. I left here full of life and God has brought me back with nothing but the clothes on my back. Why would you call me Naomi? God certainly doesn't. The strong one ruined me. And so Naomi was back, and Ruth the Moabite with her. 
back from the country of Moab, they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's show our appreciation for that. It's beautiful. I could, uh, I could listen to Johan do that all day, and uh, what an elegant instrument that is. Sure beats Max' baby guitar. I mean, what? What? I love you, buddy. I do. I'm glad uh, Toys R Us is out of business, because... Ruth is, I, I think, one of the, uh, the best short stories ever written, and uh, we're going to uh, go through this. It's really divided in four acts, like, like a modern movie, and um, it's a beautiful short story filled with a little something for everyone, um, male, female, single, romantic, cynic, married. Paul Jolliker was joking with me today, oh, the men can tune out for the next four weeks, right, because it's just Ruth. Paul, you, you sexist, no, no, nothing is in confidence, my friend. Paul's waiting for like a guy book, like Timothy or something, I don't know, no. Uh, we have preached, I have preached since I've arrived, what we'd call topically, um, and, and I think it's important that we, we mix up what's called expository preaching, and topically is like feed yourself. Um, the, for instance, a Sunday on uh, feeding yourself through worship. And so I will find passages that, that support that topic of, of worship or of meditation or of journaling or whatever it is. And expository preaching sort of um, uh, does the opposite in that it begins with the text. It begins with Scripture and whatever themes or ideas come out of the text, that's where we go. And it's, it's, it's a good way to preach. It, it also is scary in that uh, you have to deal with whatever comes up in the text. So you don't have the sort of the opportunity to kind of brush over topics that are too hard or too controversial or stuff you just don't want to deal with. In fact, in Ruth 3, it gets a little weird. It's like, you know, Girls Gone Wild on spring break, and I'm like, I'm not totally sure how I'm going to deal with that yet, but so pray for me. Um, but let's, let's do this. Let's go through this verse by verse, and I think you're going to find this is a really like, interesting short story that applies to us in 2018. So it begins this way, in the days when judges ruled. So we get our historical context, right? The period... Uh, of the judges is roughly 1200 BC to 1020 BC, before about a thousand years before the birth of, of Christ. Um, it's it's from the death of Joshua to the coronation of Saul as the king of Israel. And if you want to know more about the days of of judges, uh, simply go home and read your Bible and look for a book called Judges. Yeah, and it's one of the darkest wickedest periods of uh, God's people. Uh, it kind of can be summed up in this verse, everyone did right in their own eyes. Whew. Does that sound a little familiar? GTA? 
Um, they were surrounded, as we are today, by many opposed to God. And rather than living as light and lead a countercultural kingdom as a witness, they sadly succumbed to all kinds of temptations, particularly sexual ones. And so it says a severe famine came upon the land. Now, the scripture doesn't overtly state it, but it, it does lead us to wonder if the famine might have been God's judgment upon his people. Because famine, if not every time, almost every time that it's mentioned in scripture is done in conjunction with God's judgment. And so maybe it's a good word for us today as a as a reminder in this age of gluttony and excess to recognize that our daily bread doesn't come from the grocer, doesn't come from, from Loblaws, it comes from the Lord. It says, so a man from Bethlehem and Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. So we narrow the focus of this family from uh, what town? Uh, uh, Bethlehem. Uh, did you hear that too? Am I going crazy? I heard, I swear I heard something. Uh, but I'm going to stay focused. Okay, took my ADD medicine this morning. And uh, Bethlehem, which means, anybody know what Bethlehem means? Basically, house of bread, that's right. Uh, you're going to see some subtle ironies in this book. Uh, uh, bread withheld from Bethlehem, house of bread. So there's a husband, his wife, two children. The husband is left with a decision to make. Uh, do I remain with my family in Bethlehem where there is famine and people are literally starving to death? Or do I relocate to Moab? Moab is going to be like 50 miles away. And he decides, let's go to Moab. Now, this is where we might infer that famine might in fact be um, God's judgment because it seems that 50 miles away, everything is fine. There's no famine. And so he relocates, he relocates his family to, to Moab, which at first glance doesn't seem like such a tragic error, but ultimately it is because Moab is no place for God's people to dwell. Um, if you know the story of the Moabites, they are the product of sin, incest from Lot in Genesis 19. They gave birth to a son named Moab, and from that boy came the tribe, the people group, the Moabites. And they were considered a incestuous, perverted group of people. Furthermore, um, the Bible tells us they didn't worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They worshiped false God, uh, cruel idols. And, and so God's people weren't to move to Moab. They were not to live with the Moabites. It's a short-sighted decision from Elimelech. And, and we do that sometimes. So this man's name was Elimelech, which means my God is king, which is another subtle irony because he's not exactly acting like it. And his wife's name was Naomi, which means pleasant or sweetheart or sweetie pie. And uh, she's, she's, uh, she's a keeper. And the sons are named two bizarre names, I know these are Bible names. Please don't name them to your children. Their names are Mahon, Malon, and Killian, which actually means sick and dying, right? So I'd like to introduce you to my two boys, um, Asian bird flu and Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, don't, don't name your kids that. And, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. Now, look, 
Living in GTA is expensive, maybe one of the most expensive places in the world. Um, we, we struggle sometimes to get a roof over our head and, and basic needs met. We're, we're an expensive place. Most people need to have two incomes, and all of which to say that living in Newmarket sometimes feels like living in Bethlehem. It's hard to make ends meet. It's hard to support a family. But when we make spiritual compromises to make a living. You know, um, coming from Alberta, there's a lot of money to be made. It still is, even, even through this sort of oil dip. There's a lot of money to be made in this place called Fort McMurray, or what they call Fort McMoney now. And uh, people from my neck of the woods would work 20 days in Fort McMurray and come back for three days and then work another 20 days and maybe come back for four days. And, and the money was good. Um, can you imagine what that might have done long-term with families? And they'd wonder, you know, why are, you know, why are things going so downhill with my family? I've provided them everything they need and then some. There is... There's compromises that we make sometimes for the sake of money. And so maybe Elimelech is a tragic example of someone who didn't count the spiritual costs of relocation of his family. You know, mortgaging his future, thinking very short-sightedly. Parents, you know, when you decide where you will live and raise your children, you're deciding who your friends will be, who your kids' friends will be. You know, what school they'll attend, what church they'll attend. Maybe who your kids will marry. And uh, sometimes when making those big decisions, we only count the financial cost. And we ought to count the spiritual cost as well. Verse 3, it says, Then Elimelech died, the husband of Naomi. Why did Elimelech move to Moab? So that he wouldn't die. Uh, what did Elimelech do in Moab? He died. Moral of the story? Uh, death is in God's hands, not ours. We, we don't know how he died. Old age, we don't know. Heart attack, got hit by a camel, we don't know. <laughs> Scripture doesn't say. And it says, Naomi was left with her two sons. Now, there's a bit of hope in this because in that culture, uh, sons would take care of her, look after her, feed her, protect her in her old age. She would be okay. And these two sons, it says, married Moabite women. Now the story gets even sadder. Are God's men supposed to marry Moabite women? No. Moabites were not even allowed to enter the corporate worship assembly of God's people. It kind of presents a problem at home, raising kids. It says one married a woman named Orpah, the other named Ruth. They've been married some time, as you'll see in a moment. They have no children. The family is teetering on the brink of not existing anymore. The husband has died. The sons are childless. And both Mahlon and Kilion, what? They died. Why did Elimelech move to Moab so that his family wouldn't die? What happens? Three quarters of them die. The story gets as bleak and as hopeless as it could possibly be. I, I, some of you have have lost children, have had to bury children. I cannot think of anything harder. I have three beautiful daughters, and I adore them, and I cannot think of anything worse than having to be at the funeral of uh, a 
child of mine to prematurely have to bury my wife. And that's what's happened here to Naomi. She's gone to three funerals, and her whole family is gone. And there she was, left in Moab, no community, no church, uh, no family. She's not with her people. She's penniless, destitute, ruined. How will she respond? says, then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. God is mentioned for the first time here in Ruth in verse 6. Um, God is mentioned in Ruth 23 times. We don't know who authored Ruth. Some speculate it was Samuel. That's unlikely. We know the book was written maybe a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. The author tells us that Naomi heard a report that famine had lifted in Bethlehem after apparently many years, and now God had showed up. God was being gracious. He was blessing his people again. And so she decided to go back where God was and where his people were and and where he was blessing. And herein we find an overarching theme of the book of Ruth, the providence of of God. As we read through this this month in April, watch for these clues, watch for these hints, those themes of providence. Providence is not good luck or fortuitous circumstances or coinkydink. Uh, <laughs> providence is the invisible hand of God. It's those moments where you say, oh, that was a God moment, or, and then God showed up, even though God's always been there, you know? It's, it seems like too good to be true. It seems like luck. Well, there's not luck in God's economy. There's providence. He is directing things for our good and for his glory. So remember something else as you read this story, that uh, Naomi may speak the most, Ruth may be the most dynamic character. Boaz, as you'll see, is a, is a good man, wonderful man, but the hero of Ruth, the hero of the story, is God. Uh, the hero of my story is God. The hero of your story is God. God works through history, through scripture, through our lives. He, he does it kind of with, with two hands. One is the visible hand of miracles, of creation. Uh, the burning bush has a conversation. Uh, the, the fire comes down from heaven. The Red Sea parts. A virgin gives birth to a baby boy who walks on water and heals the sick. This is the visible hand of God. And then there's the other hand of God that works um, through providence. Some of you may say, oh, I, never, I never see God at work. Well, we do all the time through this invisible hand of providence that is only seen maybe with those who have eyes of faith. God is at work not just in human history, not just through kings and queens and rulers, but he's also at work in the everyday details of people, regular folk like you and me, like Naomi and like Ruth. And when I speak of the providence of God, I'm speaking of two doctrines that need to be held as friends closely together. That, that God is both sovereign and good. Uh, when the Bible says that God is sovereign, it means that he is the highest authority. He's above Satan and demons and 
heaven and hell and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the fields, all of it is under the sovereign hand of God. God is the one who is the highest ultimate authority. In addition to that, God is good. Uh, God is loving. God is patient. God is merciful. God is compassionate. God is kind. In God's own self-disclosure of himself in Exodus, he says, I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love. Um, uh, I'm abounding in mercy and faithfulness and forgiving of sin. God is good. This is the part where you say, all the time. All the time! And some of you would say, yes, but there's so much evil in the world. Yes, Satan is bad and demons are bad and we are bad, but God is good. And, and these two truths must be held together at all times. If you cling to one and not the other, you end up with a, a very insufficient view of God. If you only believe that God is sovereign, but God is not good, you'll know that he's in control, but you may end up thinking he's just cruel, that he's unjust, that he's capricious, like the like the mythological Greek gods. And that's not the God of the Bible. God is sovereign, but God is good. God is light. In him, there's no darkness. He, he loves us. He cares for us. He blesses us. He walks with us. He's patient with us. He is, he's good to us. So it means that God works out everything in the end for his ultimate redemptive good. You know, Genesis uh, 50 verse 20 is a classic text on this, where Joseph's brothers did horrific evil to him. And he looks at them at the end of many years, and he says, what you intended for evil, God used it for good and the saving of many lives. Um, that means that God is bigger than sin. He's bigger than war. Um, God is bigger than we are. And in the end, as Romans 8.28 says, God works out all things for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. doesn't mean that all things are what God decreed or wanted or willed or wished. It does mean that God is big enough that even when there is sin and foolishness and rebellion, God is big enough to work it out for good. God wastes not one tear. God wastes not one hardship because God is not just sovereign God is good. And if you believe that God is good, but not sovereign, you'll end up believing that God doesn't rule over all creation. God doesn't know the future. God can't bring his will to pass. God loves you. God means well. God intends well. God sheds the same tears that you shed, but God couldn't do anything about it. And that is not God either. Scripture says that nothing is too hard for God, that God sits in heaven, does whatever pleases him. He is sovereign, and he's not just sovereign, he's good. And so here we see that the sovereign God who is good shows up with his invisible hand of providence, and all of a sudden there is food on the table in Bethlehem again. The author says, it's God. It's not luck. It's not chance. It's not circumstances. It's not global warming that brought the rain. It, it was God that put food on the table, not the butcher, the baker, the dude who works at no frills. It was God. So verse 7, with her two daughters-in-law, 
She, Naomi, set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. We're leaving Moab. We're going to go where God is, where he's blessing, where God's people are. And along the way, these three women stopped to have a conversation. You're going to see this is the first of many conversations. Of 85 total verses, 55 verses are dialogue. And it says here, on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your mother's home. Go home, girls. I got nothing. I'm broke. No more kids, no more husband, no more money, no future. Um, and then she prays. It's interesting that the book of Ruth includes a number of prayers. And uh, a, a curious thing about that, um, first of all, no one ever prays for themselves in this book. They only pray for others. And, and the second thing that struck me is that every single prayer is answered by the end of the book. Because God is sovereign, and God is what? Good. God is good. We should pray because it's not in vain. That is one of the sub-stories, I think, of the book of Ruth, that every prayer is answered because God is both sovereign and good. He wants to help, and he can. So she prays, may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. And there she introduces a small word uh, in the Hebrew, okay, that is super important for our understanding of God throughout this study of Ruth. She uses the Hebrew word, it's not in the English, but it's translated from the word hesed. I'm probably saying that wrong. Hesed? What do you think, Glenn? Hesed? What do you think, Ian? Hesed? Okay, good, good. Got the thumbs up. In this little word is the summation of the most wonderful attributes of God, his Mercy, his compassion, his loving kindness, overflowing with love and blessing and kindness. You know, she says, my prayer for you girls is this. I have nothing to give you, um, but our God is a God of hesed. And my prayer is that he would give you hesed, that he would give you mercy and graciousness and loving kindness, that he would bless you. I can't bless you. I got nothing. But even if you go to Moab, my God is a sovereign God. He rules over Moab as well. May he give you hesed. And uh, only two people are referred to with this word hesed in the book of Ruth. Ruth and God, because God is a God of hesed. I was, I don't know if, if you're able to put that. I was walking downtown Newmarket yesterday, and uh, my wife pointed out there's a cafe right on down, downtown uh, Main Street. Thank you. <laughs> Such a difficult name. I forgot it for a second there. And look, I mean, if I had a cafe, that's what I would call it. Now that I've studied Ruth, cafe has said. Maybe somebody needs to tell me the story of the owners of those, if anybody knows, because I think that's a great name for a cafe. It's the attributes of God, his loving kindness. And so Ruth is spoken of as a woman of hesed. Some of, uh, of your translations will, will say loving kindness. 
She says, may the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. I, I pray that you meet a nice boy, you know, that you, that you make babies, that, that life gets better, that you stop going to funerals, you start going to wedding showers and baby showers. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. These are women who love each other. They've been through a lot. They've stood at one another sides at, at all kinds of funerals. And Naomi's telling them, go home. I'll never see you again, but I pray that the Lord brings you said. And no is what they said. We want to go with you to your people. We're going to Bethlehem. We're not going to leave you. We love each other. We'll figure this out together. But Naomi says, verse 12, turn back. I love this. My daughters. Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters. How does she feel about these women? They're her daughters. Some of you who are here, you understand what this is like. Your daughter got married, and your son-in-law is not your son-in-law. He's what? He's your son. Your your daughter-in-law is not your daughter-in-law. She's what? She's your daughter. You love her. She's part of your family. She's your heart. These women have been together at this point for more than 10 years. She says, return to your parents' home, for I'm too old to marry again, and even if it were possible that I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Ladies, you don't need an old widowed woman who will probably never get remarried, and if I do, won't have kids because I'm probably too old, and, and even if I do, what, are you going to wait 20 years to marry one of my sons? Ladies, go home. Um, go back to your mom and dad. Get your life back together. Find a job. Meet a nice boy. Start over. And she says, there are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Who does Naomi ultimately blame for her pain and suffering? Well, right now it's God that she blames. How many of you would identify with Naomi at this point? God, I know I did this, and I know they did that, but you should have shown up quicker, and you didn't. Uh, This is the indication that maybe she's not seeing God right now as a friend, but as a foe. He's dealt with me bitter. He's made my life hard. If you're a follower of God, you will have trouble. Jesus promises it, actually. But what that means practically for you and I is that whatever affliction it is, it's actually serving a purpose that is entirely different from the very same affliction that someone who doesn't know God is going through. Because God invites us to trust in him and believe that that affliction, that trouble will actually be a sanctified affliction. It is the affliction that God will use to make us more like Jesus. So for you and for me, when we arrive at places where Naomi has arrived, finds herself where life is hard and it feels like God is a foe and not a friend, you know, many of the questions on this side of heaven remain unanswered. But the one question that God seeks for us to ask is, 
God, how is this being used for my good and for your glory? Because there is no suffering, there is no affliction, there is no weeping or dark days for the child of God that is pointless, meritless, purposeless. Um, we all suffer, but, but this will change how we suffer. It enables us to have affliction that is sanctified. And I'm not just saying that every evil and injustice is something that God intended. Again, God is good, but that does mean that every hardship and affliction can be used by a sovereign God for his glory and for our good. So at this point in our journey, Naomi doesn't see this. But if you keep reading this month, and I hope you will, we'll see how this affliction becomes sanctified. Verse 14, again, they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Orpah's going to do what we would consider the ordinary choice. She goes home. Ruth is going to do what we would consider the extraordinary choice, and she'll refuse to go home. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. Do what she did, okay? Go back to her old religion, her old town. But Ruth says, and here's where Ruth speaks for the first time in the book, and her words are legendary. Uh, if you know nothing else about Ruth, maybe you've at least heard these words she's about to speak. She proclaims them as a vow to her mother-in-law and ultimately to the Lord. She says, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. How precious is a true friend. Uh, what a gift. Ruth, at this moment, I think experiences maybe what we would call her, her conversion. She's literally at a proverbial fork in the road. You know, I could go back to Moab and end up worshiping dead gods. I could go to Bethlehem and worship Yahweh. I'm going to Bethlehem. You understand that this is a bold, bold move by a young Moabite woman. Do Hebrews like Moabites? Not so much. Um, I don't know if there's even a modern equivalent. Maybe it's like um, a newly converted black woman in the, in the age of Jim Crow going, you know, I'm going to follow you to that nice white church in Mississippi. Um, she's not likely to be well-received, you know. This is, the, this is like the nice Jewish girl from the 40s saying, you know, I hear there's a nice synagogue in Germany that we should check out. That takes a lot of faith, a lot of love. And she is going there with no husband, no home, no friends, um, no blood relatives, no job, no food. It's hard to move on a good day. It was hard for the Ganyu family. But Nak took care of us. We knew we were moving to new friends, people who were rooting for us and loving for us and taking care of us. Fridge full of lasagnas. Ruth's got none of that. Maybe she's just trusting that God is good. She goes on. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. 
When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. See, what you're seeing here is the power of the second family. Um, Scripture says, if I can borrow New Testament language, that you and I have two families, the family of our birth and the family of our new birth, Um, the family that's knit together by blood, the family that's knit together by the blood of Jesus Christ. The second family is the church. And the second family are, are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you have a good family by birth and you have a church family by new birth, then you are doubly, richly blessed. And even if your blood family is not so great or you don't even have a family, your church family is oftentimes more precious, isn't it, than your, than your family of birth. Um, when trial and hardship comes, it's often your inclination to run to your second family, not your first family, uh, to run to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And Ruth, when left with the decision to decide between her family of birth and her potential new family of new birth that awaits her in Bethlehem, she chooses the latter. I think that's beautiful. Verse 19, she says, so, or, the, or the author says, so the two of them continued on their journey when they came to Bethlehem. I'm not sure how long 50 miles takes on that terrain, but they make it, and the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi, the women asked. The Bethlehem barbershops and salons were buzzing. Did you hear? Naomi's back. We haven't seen her in such a long time. We heard her husband died. Her sons died. Now, who's that Moabite girl with her? Naomi, nice to see you. Where have you been? What's going on, girl? And here's what she says, verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, which means what, sweetheart? Pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has made life for me very bitter. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Miss Jackson, if you're nasty. That's a little, no? Okay. <laughs> we'll cut that out of the, uh, the podcast. Look, <laughs> aren't bitter people fun? Aren't they just, aren't they lovely? Don't you love hanging around bitter people? No, no you don't. How many of you would choose, especially you young women, to give your whole life to a bitter older woman? You'd say, "Mm, I don't know if I need a friend that bad. Ruth devotes herself to Naomi. Naomi says, don't call me sweetheart. (laughs) Call me bitter. God has ruined my life. I went away full. I had a husband. I had children in strollers. The Lord has brought me back empty. I have got nothing. I am broken, bitter, lonely old woman. Can I tell you honestly, I like Naomi. I, I like older people who have earned the right to just say what they want when they want. No filter. I hope to uh, earn that right in a uh, few years. They're past the point of just trying to impress people. And if you're honest, you'll admit with me that it doesn't matter what your theology is or how much you love God, at some point, you're not going to be happy with God because he doesn't ask for your opinion. 
and he does what he wants when he wants, and it's not what Naomi wanted. How many of you, please don't raise your hand, are bitter with God today? You're angry, you're frustrated, you're upset, you're, you're ticked. But unlike Naomi, you're a faker. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Somebody greeted you this morning on the way in, and they were like, how are you? And you're like, oh, fine. Really? Are you really fine? Yeah, no, I'm fine. Like, the pills help, and I have this, um, <laughs> I have this accountability group with uh, Jose Cuervo and uh, Jim Bean and Johnny Walker, and we get together uh, for a few hours. We're fine. I'm fine. If, if Ruth's virtue is faith, I think Naomi's virtue is honesty. I love that about you. Naomi, how are you doing? Oh, how am I doing? Oh, um, my life sucks. <laughs> Thanks for asking. And God's not helping like he said he would. I love her honesty. Some of you here... You're frustrated, and you're angry, and you're bitter. And uh, notice, though, Naomi goes to God's people and tells them, here's where I'm at. Uh, Maybe she's inviting others in for counsel and for support and mercy and correction. And I would encourage you to be as honest as she is. It's, It's why small group communities have to happen at New Market Alliance Church. They just have to. I got to witness, uh, I was sort of, uh, I guess, a fly on the wall. I went to Stosky's one night where they were <clears throat> with uh, an old small group, not their current small group, but an old small group, and going around the table and just hearing the honest vulnerability of, of where people's lives were at. There was something beautiful about that and raw and touching as what was in the darkness was brought into the light. We need that, folks. We need it. It says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Bethlehem. There is a town pregnant with meaning. Who's going to be born there? Jesus. This is going to be a good, good place. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. And what is that? That, friends, is hope. Uh, the famine is gone. God is, is blessing his people. His hand of providence and kindness and said are blessing his people. It's a new day in Israel. Maybe it's a new day in the life of Naomi and Ruth. To be continued. Let's wrap up with this. Your life my life, Ruth and Naomi's stories in which the providential hand of God is working out these parts that we consider afflictions, but haven't received them yet as sanctified. You know, maybe you would identify yourself with somebody in this story. Who are you like? How many of you would say you're Elimelech-ish? You know, he decides Moab has a lower cost of living. Moab has food on the table. I'll make a plan. I'll be sovereign. I'll take care of everything. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. I know what's best for my family. He tries to be sovereign. Everybody dies anyway. 
How many of you would be Orpah-esque? You know, you tried God, but the going is getting tough. So you're thinking of going back to Moab, maybe. The old way. Yeah, I was dating a non-Christian boy, and I prayed, and he didn't become a Christian, and it didn't work, so I give up, you know? My wife was driving me crazy. My husband was driving me crazy. I prayed. God didn't change them. God didn't do what I told him to do, so I give up on Jesus. How many of you are Ruth-ish? If you are, please let us know. We'd love to take you out for coffee, find out what makes you so awesome. Um, maybe you're a woman, a man who just trusts in the character of God. She says, you know what? God is sovereign. God is good. I trust him. We'll see what happens. How many of you are a little Naomi-ish? You're a bit bitter, a bit cynical. And someone who God loves deeply for some reason. Actually, we're going to find ourselves at varying seasons in our lives identifying with each character, I think, in a different way. I want to invite the band to come back. You know, Jesus Christ is one who can do more than just empathize. He has suffered. He has seen dark days. He he is a God who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been there. He's died for our sins. He rose to defeat death, and today he is in heaven, seated upon a throne. He is the sovereign, and he is good. And by faith, we'll see his hand of providence causing even our afflictions to be sanctified. So let's run to him. Let's run to his people. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. That is my prayer. That's my prayer for you. Good morning. Um, my name is Linda, for those of you who don't know me. And... Um, I just asked Jonathan if when we hired him, did he know about the open mic at NAC? And he said he did, so here I am. Um, so um, we do have this tradition where if, if God is really speaking to you and you really feel like you need to share that um, with um, the people, that the mic is here, but keep it short. <laughs> okay. Um, so I just wanted, I just wanted to say um, thank you so much. That was so good. It was such a good word. Um, and um, anyway, um, what what the Lord was reminding me this morning is um, a long time ago, um, I had a really good friend and mentor in my life. And um, when I've been through time of trial, this person said to me, the better question is not why. Why is not a good question to ask God. A better question is, are you with me, God? And that's the, if you're going through a trial, if you're going through an affliction, if you're going through a hardship, that is the question. God will always answer you. I will never leave you or forsake you. That is so sweet. We are never alone. We never have to be alone. 
He's with us no matter what. This is uh, particularly a good word for, for Linda in these days, who is in a, a tough season. And so we continue to pray for Linda and others. Thank you, God. You are with us. You are with us. And for those who would say, I, I'm not sure I believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Um, you are with us, God. So, Lord Jesus, you are the God whose hand appears in our life, often through providence, occasionally through a miracle. You are the God of Hesed. You are loving and gracious and merciful, passionate and kind. You're a God who can sympathize with us because you have suffered well. Thank you. You are the God of Ruth, that her hope was not in vain, that our hope in you is not in vain. Thank you that you're the God of Naomi, that even when we're frustrated and bitter and speaking what we're feeling, maybe what we ought not to, you work out all things for our good. And Jesus, we thank you for that. We ask now that you would enable us in every circumstance, not to seek to be the sovereign, the know-it-all, but rather to be a humble worshiper who in faith runs to you and to your people that our afflictions may be sanctified. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, that you are with us. I'm so glad that you came to church. I really am. More important, starting the minute you walk out those doors, would you be the church? Your love people. God bless you as you go.